0: Dr. Loeb, what percentage chance do you give it that you have, indeed, uncovered extraterrestrial or non-human technology? We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, This world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's.
1: Did the CIA write wind of change by the scorpions?
0: (laughs) As humans busied themselves about the various concerns, they were scrutinized Mm -hmm. and studied. Dr. Loeb, what percentage Mm -hmm. chance do you give it that you have indeed uncovered extraterrestrial or non-human technology? With infinite complacence, people went about their affairs Mm -hmm. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, intellects vast and unsympathetic through their plans against us.
1: Prior to your abduction, did you believe in UFOs or any sort of alien life form? Mm-hmm.
0: All things unexplained.
1: So some of that I think sir will say for close session.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: hello all of you beings out there in the universe we are so excited to have you joining us today we have dr avi loeb back on our show we're so fortunate we have had him on a few times before if you're interested to hear about his background or his latest expedition you can take a look at some of our previous podcasts he is the head astrophysicist at harvard university he is working with the galileo project looking for extraterrestrial life he is also the author of a new book coming out this august called interstellar we are so excited to dive into that book we loved his previous book extraterrestrial i know i read it hard copy and tim you listened to it on audible didn't you
1: Yes, I did. Just, you know, doing dishes around the house, doing laundry, driving to the grocery store. I tune Extraterrestrial on. To me, Audible, it's a great way to listen to books. They also have podcast music specials that are only available in on Audible. And we cannot wait to listen to Interstellar.
0: Yes, yeah, so we cannot wait. And in fact, everybody can listen to Interstellar. We have partnered with Audible to give our listeners a free trial. You can head to audibletrial.com backslash UFO to get your free trial. Again, that's audibletrial.com backslash UFO. And speaking of UFOs, Dr. Avi Loeb had the expedition of a lifetime at the Pacific Ocean in Papua New Guinea, looking for signs of extraterrestrial life. Dr. Loeb, what percentage chance do you give it that you have indeed uncovered extraterrestrial or non-human technology?
2: Uh, it's a possibility and the reason i say that is first this is the first uh, object that came from outside the solar system that uh, humans noticed uh and that was based on uh, u.s government sensors uh, primarily satellites that discovered this uh, uh, fireball back in 2014 january 8th uh, over the pacific ocean and what made this meteor different than other meteors is that the object was moving very fast. In fact, uh, not only that it was not bound to the sun, but outside the solar system, if you were to extrapolate, the speed was 60 kilometers per second, which is faster than 95 percent of all stars in the vicinity of the sun. And moreover, this object uh, only disintegrated in the lower atmosphere of the Earth, where the air density is very high. So um, it had material strength that allowed it to sustain the extreme stress of the atmosphere. Uh, And that material strength was tougher than all space rocks that NASA cataloged over the past decade. So if you think about it, an object that has material strength above even iron meteorites that make 5% of all space rocks and that moves very fast could potentially be a spacecraft uh like imagine Voyager uh, that will collide with an exoplanet in a billion years and would burn up in the atmosphere of that planet as a meteor Uh, that's what we are talking about and to find out you know this is not a hypothetical question we can go out there to the site of the meteor and find any leftovers from it Uh, and that's what we did in this expedition uh it uh, cost one and a half million dollars and i had a funder that uh, came forward and said you have the money his name is charles hoskinson and then we hired uh, the ship that was fittingly called silver star Uh, we built a sled that had magnets on both sides and we dragged it on the ocean floor with a cable uh the depth of the ocean is two kilometers and what we found are tiny spheres uh, basically metallic marbles um, that uh, were attracted to the magnets together with the most abundant uh, constituent down there was uh, volcanic ash basically black powder you can see it in a vial that I'm holding here in my hand this is from the last run uh basically black powder is most of the stuff that we collected we scraped it off the magnets and put it in vials and then uh, dried it up used the mesh to filter out the tiny particles that are volcanic in origin from earth and then we were left with some uh, bigger particles above the size of a quarter of a millimeter and we put them under a the microscope and lo and behold we, we found these beautiful metallic marbles that are very distinct relative to their environment and and they represent the molten droplets from the surface of the object when it was exposed to the extreme heat from the fireball from the friction of the object with the air Uh, the amount of energy released was a few percent of the hiroshima atomic bomb energy so that was deposited into 500 kilograms of material and resulted in melting and we found amazingly enough millimeter-sized uh droplets that fell off the object And we had to survey a region that was 10 kilometers in size and two kilometers deep to find those. And we found more than 50. In fact, my student um, yesterday found another one. Um, And so um, it's quite remarkable in terms of a scientific uh, accomplishment. And, you know, people may say, oh, maybe these things are everywhere. You know, like uh, maybe you didn't find anything. It has nothing to do with the meteor. Well, we went to other locations, which were, you know, tens of kilometers away from the meteor site, and we didn't find many uh, spherules there. Um, Just next to the expected path of the meteor, we found in one line that we took, you know, with the sled, we found um, 11 of them. When we went far away, at most one, so it's clearly a concentration associated with the meteor and we are now studying those uh, spherules. that that's the way they are called these marbles um, we're studying their composition in three laboratories one is at Harvard University another one at UC Berkeley and the third one at the Bruker uh, Corporation in Germany
0: so I was just reading some of your articles the other day, which can be found at Avi lobe That's L O B L O E B excuse me. dot com. So Avi com. And you were talking about how these were being FedExed, how you're having to FedEx these amazing things that you found. I mean, what level of fear was in your stomach as you were waiting for these to arrive?
2: Yeah. So I, I had to decide whether to carry them in my suitcase uh or to send them by fedex and i decided that it's safer to send them by fedex because suitcases are lost very often uh and uh, it was funny because it took a few days for fedex to deliver and actually the delivery person almost left Uh, he didn't actually even ring the bell he just knocked very politely on the door and wanted to take it back and i ran after him and said please give it to me (laughs) <laughs> and then um, I realized that it took a few days for FedEx to deliver but this material was delivered to earth probably after a few billion years uh, of uh, a very long journey from a distant location so uh, if you think about it it's interstellar delivery services that uh, sometimes take uh, billions of years and um, the few extra days of delay were not uh, much of a worry. I also had to send uh, some material to Germany and declare to FedEx what the content of the package is. Yeah. And I said, uh, sand. And then I had to <laughs> declare the value of it. And I said, no commercial value. Of course, it has huge intellectual value.
0: Yeah. Scary. I think I would have been a nervous wreck waiting for those to be delivered. So tell us what the next steps are and yeah what we might be able to ascertain in terms of what you found
2: yeah so that's uh, the most important step and of course uh, many people jump into conclusions prematurely and uh, what we are doing is using really the best uh, instruments that uh, the scientific world has to offer and that includes uh, a scanning um, electron uh, microscope basically getting images of those spherules and already on the first day that we came back i passed through uc berkeley and looked at one of those images and it was amazing because we could see a spheral as a sphere uh, inside of which we find smaller spheres inside of which you find even smaller spheres so it's sort of like uh, russian dolls uh, the idea is that uh, uh, the first uh, spheres to solidify have only only a size of a few hundred atoms and uh, they solidify very quickly but then they get engulfed uh, by uh, molten iron uh a, a bigger droplets that glue them together and then even bigger droplets that glue those together so you end up in sort of a hierarchy of spheres which is really beautiful I don't know if it was discussed much in the literature but we saw it in state-of-the-art electron microscope uh we also use them uh, a mass spectrometer after ablating some some of the material from a spherol, uh, we could analyze what elements uh, and isotopes, radioactive isotopes are making it. That's important for two reasons. One, we can compare the composition to solar system materials and see whether we have some elements that have a very different abundance. Just imagine a computer screen or a semiconductor melted into droplets it would have very different composition of rare elements compared to what you find in nature because we concentrate those rare elements in a semiconductor and so you could tell a technological device just based on composition in principle Um, and then uh, uh, the radioactive isotopes they can serve as a clock because some of them are unstable and they have a half-life a certain lifespan and um, if you see them you know that the duration of the journey was uh, shorter than their lifespan and depending on how many of them you see relative to their decay products you can basically clock the duration of the journey you can tell how long it was and that's what we hope to do and in fact i looked at two of the spherols that came from the meteor path and they seem to be older than the solar system we are still um, analyzing that data But uh, we are writing all together, we are writing a scientific paper that will hopefully within a month be submitted for publication in which we will detail the preliminary results from the analysis. And and that's the way science is done. It's not jumping into conclusions just based on your belief. Uh, It's uh, analyzing and first of all, collecting the evidence, you know, even though it sounds really straightforward and trivial and simple, Uh, a colleague of mine approached me a week before we went to the expedition and said uh, you know many of us believe that this is a waste of your time a waste of money why would you do that and i said i'm not asking you to do anything (laughs) you can just sit i'm doing the heavy lifting you sit back and relax and when i come back if i don't bring anything back you can say that's what i thought and by the way i'm not using any of the money that you are now dedicating to dark matter research you know this is uh money that was provided to the expedition and was not taken away from any other science it's in fact it's extra money for science so it's a win-win situation where you i'm just going to collect evidence and let's see if i find anything if i will not search obviously i will not find anything and um, on the day that i came back there was a paper published in the astrophysical journal uh by some astronomers who said that actually the government must have been wrong uh, in the data they provided for the speed of this meteor, because we use the model for stony meteorites of the solar system, and it couldn't fit that data. Therefore, the data must be wrong. And, you know, that's a presumptuous approach, because I was told that if your model doesn't fit data, you don't say the data is wrong. You try to revise the model, which is pretty much what I argue that the material strength of this object was different from stony meteorites but they basically argued this object cannot be made of iron while I was holding in my hands the materials from this meteor that were primarily iron based on the x-ray fluorescence analyzer on the ship so uh, and also for them to claim the US government is wrong by a factor of a few that the speed is smaller by a factor of a few than it was measured. You know it's a very bold claim because the u.s space command just a year ago came with a letter an official letter to nasa saying we are confident at the 99.999 percent that the velocity measurement was correct and that this object came from outside the solar system it was interstellar and i frankly i sleep better at night because now that we went to that place that the government talked about we found the spherals from the meteor uh you know I know that the government's sensors are to be trusted these are sensors being used to monitor ballistic missiles that Mm -hmm. are headed towards the U.S and uh obviously you know if the government was wrong by a factor of three on each measurement you know they could say oh no this missile goes to Mexico while it goes to actually Washington DC right so um for astronomers to claim that the government does not know what what they're doing is a very bold claim that's what they claim uh just so that their model would fit the data and I would bring a sense of modesty to science you know like we shouldn't be so arrogant as to say if what we can imagine does not fit the data the data must be wrong because we already know that for example the data on the Milky Way Galaxy suggests matter that we've never found in the solar system we call it dark matter that's 83 percent of the matter in the universe and just imagine you know most cosmologists write papers on the dark matter that's a major area of research imagine cosmologists saying oh the data that we uh, are trying to interpret does not cannot be fitted with material we find in the solar system therefore the data must be wrong you know that that is completely contrary to uh the way we do cosmology nowadays
0: yes it's a very very exciting time in astrophysics and to be looking for extraterrestrial life on our planet or extraterrestrial evidence i should say on our planet is very exciting you've sort of turned into a a maverick (laughs) astrophysicist these days it seems but we really love that you're the work that you're doing and appreciate that you're pushing the envelope and that you're looking for things that others aren't looking for and that you have now sparked interest in the private sector to secure funds to go and do this is really phenomenal
2: thank you Uh, i should mention also something that you may not know that in fact it inspires artists uh, a number of them like a couple of days ago there was a, a sculptor um, who decided to dedicate a sculpture bigger than a person to the research I'm doing so he's working on that and then uh, a playwright uh, from Los Angeles uh, just finished a play that he hopes will be featured uh, on Broadway uh, about my scientific career and wow. uh, a songwriter uh, who won uh, uh you know 3 Grammys uh, 4 Oscars 3 Emmys uh decided to write a song about uh, my research uh there is a filming crew that is making a documentary with a very large budget about the research um so and, and of course the book that is coming up so all there is a lot of art artistic interest so i think it inspires a lot of people out there and when i wrote the diary reports on medium.com there were millions of people around the world who read them and they said that it gives them a new sense of how science is being done because what they usually see are scientists at press conferences lecturing the public about the final findings whereas the way science is done is uh, very different it's by iterations Uh, sometimes you make the wrong assumptions and then you collect more evidence to figure out the truth it's like a detective story it Mm -hmm. has twists and turns So they don't see that. The public doesn't see that. And when I was writing these diary reports, they could see how how it's done. And so they very much appreciated. I think science, the the lesson is that science can be exciting as long as it resonates with the public's interest. And the second lesson is science cannot be diminished by the negative undertones of uh, social media or of academic jealousy. Absolutely.
0: Yes. And Tim, you've got a PowerPoint, right, from the actual expedition. Speaking of film crews and documentaries.
1: And <laughs> oh, indeed. And we're so pleased to have Dr. Avi Loeb back with us again. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Loeb. This would be a great time to mention. We have partnered with Audible, and you can pre-order Dr. Loeb's next book, Interstellar, for free right now. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com ufo And in Dr. Loeb's previous book, Extraterrestrial, which I listened to on Audible, Dr. Loeb hypothesized about the possibility of ancient relics from previous technologically advanced cosmic societies or civilizations. And he may very well have found the evidence for it now on his latest expedition. So head to audibletrial.com backslash ufo and you can download a or pre-order a copy of his next book interstellar which we are very much looking forward to and dr loeb i've got a few slides here and i think this is great because cj and i are both you know amazed at the science of this all and we love following your science and this is just part of it and i really liked how apparently you you did a lot of running on the expedition
2: right Well, I I do. I jog every morning at sunrise and I didn't give up on that on the deck. Uh, But after the first day, I realized that I'm actually running slower than usual. I was wondering whether I'm tired. And then the next day I was running faster than usual. And that led me to realize that I'm actually jogging on a platform. And when I use my workout app on my watch, uh, it's using GPS and the GPS system measures the speed of the boat because I'm actually running on a (laughs) so it took me a while to recognize the fact that I cannot measure reliably the way the you know my my speed but uh, there was also a filming crew uh on the ship and they decided to film me jogging at sunrise one morning and uh then uh the director asked me uh it looks like you're running are you running away from something or towards something and I said both I'm running away from some of my colleagues who prefer to have opinions without seeking evidence. And I'm running towards a higher intelligence in interstellar space. Love that. And here is
1: one of the spheres that you collected, I believe.
2: Right, these are beautiful metallic marbles. And my daughter asked if I can give her one so that to put on on a necklace. Uh, and i said no these are tiny half a millimeter you can't thread them uh and the one thing is we found also some biological spheres but them they they are easy to to basically crash with tweezers and the metallic marbles are really tough they're made mostly of iron and here you see one of them and the reason they are spherical is uh, similar that the the droplets of rain are roughly spherical the there is surface tension when the iron uh, melted uh, that kept it spherical Um, but we did see some examples of uh, mergers where multiple spheres came together and then solidified before they had a chance to become spherical uh, after the merger and uh, and i did a calculation that indicates that's reasonable if the collision of the droplets occurs within tens of meters from the explosion and as i said before we also Uh, looked at the the internal structure, and many of them have spheres inside spheres, which means that close to the explosion, you have a lot of droplets colliding with each other.
0: So for for those that are listening and and not watching on our podcast, this particular sphere has almost the colors, if I'm seeing it correctly, of, of Earth, as if you were looking at planet Earth from above. I'm seeing some deep blue and some green.
2: Yeah, there was even one that uh, looked uh, like half a sphere that was damaged. And I called it uh, an alien emoji. Here it is.
1: (gasps) This is my favorite.
2: (laughs) And for those listening uh,
1: on podcast platforms such as Audible or Amazon or Spotify or Apple, this reminds me so much of the infamous Crystal Skulls but it's, it's not crystal and it, it looks like what you might, I don't know, think of as an alien skull.
2: <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. But then um, it's mostly iron and um, there are some additional elements and including elements all the way to uranium. And, um, so we are now analyzing it and trying to figure out what we can learn from the composition, but of course you can also think of these spherules as uh, rose petals that uh, romantically lead us to our partner and the pa- by partner i mean um, a big piece of the meteor that uh, may lie somewhere on the ocean floor we now know where to search for that with a sonar and that could be the focus of a future expedition
1: right and how confident are you Dutch lobe that a lot of what you found is not pollution
2: oh uh These uh, pieces lay lay on the ocean floor for almost a decade. So the surface of them could have been uh, easily uh, contaminated by some background materials attached to them, including biological material. But we are trying to look uh, deeper than uh, the skin of this of these uh, spherols. Now, there could be some particles that came from uh, human activities. I mean, we did see some shards of uh, iron on on the ocean floor but you can tell the difference if for example you date the material age and you figure out that it's older than the solar system so irrespective of what humans do they always use materials from the solar system and uh, as a result when you look at the abundance of uranium and lead you find that uh, they they give you as cosmic clocks they give you the age of the solar system but if something came from far away outside the solar system it could have a different age it could also have different um, abundance of rare elements and rare elements are produced either in uh, supernova explosions or in collisions of neutron stars and if an object comes from a very different environment it would have it would have been perhaps closer to a collision of neutron stars or the supernova that enriched it had a star, progenitor star, of a different mass than the one that enriched the solar system. So, so in principle, we can tell the difference.
1: Right. That's a great point, Dr. Loeb. And now we're looking at a photo of Dr. Loeb on the deck, I suppose, of the expedition craft that they were used to search for these spheres and other evidence. Now, Dr. Loeb, I have to say that while I was looking at these photos of you on this really historic expedition i couldn't help but think of a a recent story in the news about another ocean expedition to look at the titanic this was the ocean gate titan submersible with ceo stockton rush on board that tragically imploded on the way down do you have any thoughts on that situation because your your expedition does remind me when i see these pictures i can't help but think of that
2: Yeah, so, you know, the difference is that uh, I asked uh, Rob McCallum to coordinate my expedition. He's the world expert in ocean expeditions. And as it turns out, in the middle of uh, our expedition, he was asked to comment on OceanGate because by the BBC, by many other outlets, because he actually in 2019 approached the uh CEO of that uh, company and and told them that it's unsafe uh, so uh he is a very reliable person and the fact that he was on my team uh, made our expedition a success but uh in respect with respect to Ocean Gate I should say that he had the insight that uh, they used materials that were not tested well enough and that they took risks that he thought are unsafe uh and he um Taught, uh, wrote, put it in writing in letters to them uh, to not do it so um, in retrospect he is a very reliable person and you know there there were many failure points of our expedition where things would not have worked the way we wanted them to work for example we had the sled and the, the first challenge was to keep it on the ocean floor and it took us a couple of days because at first the cable uh, was pulling it up and it was lifted that the sled was lifted like a kite uh, above the ocean floor and uh then the engineers and the professionals we had exceptional people on the team managed to find a way to go with the ocean currents and keep it on the floor uh and then um, the fact that the sled worked uh, the way we wanted it that it collected the materials and uh, performed the way we needed it to perform and then we had the relevant tools on the ship to separate those spherules, select them with tweezers, and then look at them through microscope and figure out their composition using the X-ray analyzer. Uh, That all worked amazingly well. And there were people along the way that enabled those things to work. So it's really a team effort. And I'm very fortunate. You know, I was worried that the things that we will not find anything. So uh, it looks like uh, Rob uh, brought uh, bottles of champagne on the ship and Uh, We celebrated at the end the success of the mission. But uh, I asked him, uh, why did you bring champagne? It was not obvious at all that uh, we would be successful, to me at least. And he said, I'm an optimist. And my lesson from that is that, um, you know, sometimes life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell yourself that uh, you might succeed, you actually could make it. Uh, If you tell yourself there is no chance... There is no point in going there. Obviously, you will not find anything.
1: Right, and I believe we're looking at a picture now of Dutch Lobe on deck with the sled that you use to collect evidence from
2: the right. floor. So let me let me explain what we are looking at. So
0: to be continued.
1: Thanks. Like. Share. Follow. Comment. Subscribe. Support. What's your hot take on Travis Taylor?
0: <laughs> I've got an exclusive for you guys if you okay. want it about yes, the Alaska. Absolutely. We do. Okay, okay.
1: More at bigfootufo.com
0: all things unexplained
2: so some of that i think sir will save the Mm -hmm. close